That's a good motto, not just for Fanny Crosby, but for me, for you. Well, I see my daughter's business card right there. Hey, find a treasure every day. Before I dismiss the kids, um, just a word on what a blessing to have a pastor like you do. 42 years? You know how much of a, a blessing that is? The average stay of a Baptist pastor in our circles is about three to five years. Do you know that? The average size of an independent Baptist church is about 85 people. And uh, the Bible says the labor is worthy of his hire. I'm, I'm so glad you gave them a getaway trip. We had a fun time talking about it on Sunday. It took them a while to be able to take advantage of their opportunity to go out of the country. And, you know, a lot of times we get to the end of a week of meetings and people will say nice things to my family and me. Angela, thank you for working with the kids. Heather, Lene, thanks for helping your mom in those meetings. Something nice to me, you know. Um, you know why people are saying nice things? Because we're leaving. And they know it. And so... <laughs> It's now or never, right? Well, guess who's not leaving? Your pastor. In fact, he's going to be chomping at the bit to preach because he's been out of the pulpit three weeks. And is Will Rice preaching Sunday for you or are you preaching? Oh, you are. Okay. Because I think that's going to be some message. He's going to be like, let me in that pulpit. So just to say, because your pastor has been here for decades, sometimes it's easy just to assume, hey, you know, he knows we appreciate him. But I hope you'll take time to tell him. And you all know this, the pastor's wife is every bit up to her eyes in ministry as is her husband. And so I hope that you will take time to tell your dear pastor's wife how much you appreciate her. I know last time I was here, Brother Nichols was bragging to me. He said, I'll tell you what, I would take 100 Denise Petersons, you know, just bragging to me about what a blessing and uh, the faithfulness of a couple. So I have just a little gift for you. I didn't want to embarrass you, but I do want to thank you for what you do and for your faithful service. God bless you, you both. Thank Thanks. You. Something in there for each of you. It's not a new car, you know. It's nothing <laughs> like, it's not a trip to New Zealand either, but, but it is an 18-hour plane ride. No. Uh, no, it's not. All right, dismissing of children. Now, I know we normally have a wana. We're going to go up to fourth grade here, okay? So the, the kids up to fourth grade, you know who you are. And uh, the other ones get to stay with me tonight. We're going to go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. So I write lots of nice things about all of you in my journal, because whenever I come, I keep a journal, and whenever I come, there is such kindness bestowed upon us. We have had cookies given to us, and meals delivered to us, and meals made for us, and I think I said last night, I am fed up, but it's a good fed up. Thank you, really good fed up. Uh, you lavish kindness upon us, and you're, you're warm. My girls were saying, you know, wow, the people have been nice, and... We had friends come from Orlando the other night and said, oh, that's a friendly church. If they, they've been visiting churches, and they said, man, if this church weren't two hours away, we'd come here. So good for you guys. Keep up the good work. And uh, I was grateful to see that the other night. We're in Acts chapter 12. I will tell you something. I have in my binder back there three messages that I have wrestled with all day. What is the right message for tonight? I told you I had a lot of things I wish I could have shared, right? And just ran out of days here. So I have gone back and forth, and I was really, really leaning towards something on prayer because this is Wednesday night, and I, I mean, what can I leave with you with more important than prayer? And so I had two messages on prayer, and it is one of those two that I landed on tonight. And couldn't, couldn't miss with any of them. They're the Word of God. But I really do pray, Lord, give me the right message for the right night. So if you need something specific tonight, I'd love to have you testify to me on the way out. Hey, I know why God led you to preach that message. That encourages me that the Lord's hearing. I'm asking him to give you what you need. Occasionally, I've had people get convicted, and they'll come and say to me, have you been talking to my pastor? Because, you know, they feel like it's really personal. And I will tell them, no, but I've been talking to your father. And he knows you better than your pastor knows you. And I really do. I ask your father, give me just what you need. So give me Jesus. That's a good one. Lord, give me your wisdom what to preach. All right, we're in Acts chapter 12. I think all of you know the name D.L. Moody, one of the most famous evangelists who ever lived. And a man with just a sixth grade education, he had to drop out of school. He was trying to earn a million dollars in shoe sales. Uh, moved out from, uh, from, uh, Massachusetts, from Boston out to Chicago. That was the boom town at the time. And just before he moved out, he had a Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who led him to Christ. And he goes out to Chicago. He wants to work in a Sunday school class. They said, all of our slots are filled but if you want to start your own, you can. And he did. And soon he had over 400 kids in his Sunday school class. In fact, his Sunday school class was bigger than the entire church. 
They called him Crazy Moody because he used all kinds of ways to reach kids. And he had a, back then he's working with street kids and they didn't have a very good attention span. Sound familiar? And so he would vary his teaching methods. He'd, they'd sing for five minutes and then they'd memorize scripture for five minutes. And then he'd teach a lesson for 10 minutes and then he'd jump back to singing for a few minutes and just kept things moving. And eventually God called him to be an evangelist. And what a, what a life. So 1871, the Chicago fire hit. He was pastoring at the time, what became known as the Moody Church in Chicago. And his church and everybody else's burned to the ground. So in uh, 1873, while his church lay in ashes and they were still, the city was rebuilding, he decided to take a trip to uh, England. He thought, well, I don't have a church building in which to preach. I, I want to go hear others preach. He wanted to meet George Mueller and wanted to hear and meet Charles Spurgeon. And so he said, I'm going to go to England, and I'm going to listen. Well, it was a sabbatical, kind of just refresh time. And when he was there, he was asked by a pastor in London if he would please preach in his church. And reluctantly, he agreed. The pastor's name was John Lessie. And so he went to John Lessie's church, and he said, you know, I got up that morning, and I'd have to say that when I began to preach, it just felt like there was such opposition, there was such coldness of heart. And he said, I, I chided myself as I was standing in the pulpit. Moody, you came to England to listen, and here you are preaching. And then he said he had the dreaded thought, and I've agreed to preach tonight as well. And he said only his commitment kept him coming back that night. He said he wanted to be anywhere but there that night. But when he stepped into the pulpit that evening, he said the entire atmosphere had changed. He was going to preach a simple gospel message. The way they do it in England, a lot of times the, the evangelistic thrust will be on a Sunday night because people from the mainline churches would come and visit. So typically they'd have a thrust for evangelism on Sunday night. Well, he decided I'll preach my simple gospel and I'll get out of here. He said it was like the powers of an unseen world were moving across that congregation. He said people were listening with rapt attention. There was conviction. He said it was unbelievable. So he got to the invitation and he said, I told the people, if you would like to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, stand to your feet. There were 500 people that stood. He thought, well, maybe they don't understand. Maybe my American ways are too different than the British ways. So he told them to be seated and he began to explain more detailed what he was asking look you you're realizing it's not church that can get you to heaven it's only the finished work of jesus christ his death burial and resurrection and you're willing to denounce trust in anything else or anyone else and you're going to put your trust in him alone and if you mean that would you stand to your feet again same number of people arose 500 he thought no they don't understand so he told them to all be seated again and he went through it one more time, and he said, now, if you're really serious about this, I want you to meet me in the vestry. The vestry is the lobby. 500 people filed out. And after the service that night, he and Pastor Leslie, Leslie were working to the wee hours of the morning, dealing with people, telling them how to be saved. Moody couldn't figure it out. He went on the next day. I, I think if I remember right, he was heading to Ireland, um, Ireland or Wales, and Pastor Leslie had people coming to his study day after day asking, could we have extended meetings? We need more of this. So Leslie wrote to, uh, sent a telegram, I think it was, sent a telegram to him, said, look, we need you to come back and conduct meetings. Would you please come back? So he went back and he preached. And night after night, there were people being saved. Moody said to the pastor, what happened? The morning service, there was such opposition. But in the evening service, there was a total change. The pastor said, I don't know what to, to say about it. Well, that didn't suffice with Moody. He began to investigate. Something happened. And then he found this story. There was a woman in the church who went home after the morning service and spoke to her sister, Marianne. Marianne Adlard was a shut-in. She was an invalid woman, couldn't get out, but she was a prayer warrior. And the sister came home and said, Marianne, you will never guess who was at our church today. She said, sister, I would have no idea who was at our church today. She said, you haven't told me. She said, we had a Mr. Moody from Chicago. She said, D.L. Moody was in our church. She said, you know of him? Know of him. She said, I've read his sermons in one of the Christian periodicals. She said, I have been asking God to send that man to our church. She said, if I had known that Mr. Moody would have been at our church today, I would have taken no food all last night, all today. In fact, sister, please leave my room. 
She said, send me no visitors, send me no food. I must spend the entire afternoon in prayer with God. And that woman prayed, and heaven stepped down. I want to give you a message tonight I've entitled, The Power of Prayer. The Power of Prayer. Will Rice will be here on uh, Saturday for your, your outreach, and uh, his, both his dad and his uncle were teachers of mine when I was in college. And I remember told the prayer meeting tonight, um, Pete Rice, his uncle, making a statement one time. It made a deep impression on me. He said, young people, listen. You need to pray big prayers to a big God looking for big answers. Yeah, that's well said. Pray big prayers to a big God looking for big answers. If you believe that God is omnipotent, well, then the question, is there anything too hard for him? Seems like an odd question, doesn't it? If one is omnipotent, then really, how can anything even be hard for God? <laughs> Too hard? How is it hard when you're omnipotent? If we really believe that, it would change the way we pray. Acts chapter 12. I'm going to cover verses 1 to 19 tonight. Let me just read the first five by way of introduction here, the power of prayer. Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. When he'd apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Notice, prayer made without ceasing, of the church, unto God, for him. Father, I would like to pray as your disciples prayed. Lord, teach us to pray. Not just how to do it, but to do it. To be a praying people. The request on my list this, week, this year is, would you just teach me prayer at a whole new level? A Andrew Murray wrote that book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, and I've often thought how you just take us through different class levels in, in school to get us to a new height, new level, new proficiency. I sure don't want to spend my life in elementary school, in grade school, when it comes to praying. In fact, if it's possible to get a, a graduate degree in it, I'd, that's one graduate degree I'd sure like to have. Please teach us to pray. Let us practice prayer. Let us be the recipients of answered prayer. Please make prayer a priority for each of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll give you a little background here. Acts chapter 12. This is a book written by the, uh, the uh, physician Luke. You remember, he wrote two books of the Bible. It's very interesting. Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. I thought Paul. Paul wrote more books. Yeah, more books, but not more words. Luke was a detailed person, and he wrote two books, Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And it's very interesting that Luke uh, begins, he mentions here the treatise, the former treatise, have I written unto you, O Theophilus, that's chapter one of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So that's a reference to his gospel. This is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's what God, what the Lord Jesus continued to do in this case, through his apostles. And the focus is primarily on the ministries of Peter and Paul, and then you'll see some of the other apostles mentioned as well. But we come to chapter 12, and the book was written somewhere around 59 to 61 A.D., uh, so you figure not, not, not even 30 years after Jesus had died, uh, sometime prior to 64, because there was widespread persecution under Nero in 64. So this is sometime prior to that, probably about 59 to 61, somewhere in there. And we come to a place in the book of Acts where there is there's trouble, there's turbulence coming the church's way. Notice verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. The word vex means to cause harm to, to trouble, to do injury to. So I'm going to start by breaking it down this way. And if you want to take notes tonight, let's start with this. Number one is problematic situations. Problematic. You know how to spell problem. Just put A-T-I-C on the end. Problematic. Problematic situations. What are problematic situations? Well, if you ever said, man, we're in a pickle. Okay, tough times, difficult times. What are the problematic situations? Well, 
First of all, you see the church persecuted. Verse 1, he stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. You know, sometimes we feel like we're being persecuted because we get kicked off of Twitter or, you know, our social media account is canceled. This is real persecution. I remember I went to college um, in the 1980s. I mentioned the other night that there was, you know, the Soviet Union was still um, in power at the time. And by the 1990s now, I'm traveling for PCC, and I was out in California. I'm a college representative. I'm in Fresno, and I'm in a church where a bunch of people have these headphones on, and there's a guy in the sound booth, and he's translating my message. And I didn't know anything about him at the time, but I asked later, who's the young man and who are these people? Well, they're all Ukrainians and Russians, and they came here to flee persecution. And that young man is Constantine, and I said, I'd like to meet him. So I got to talk to him, and Constantine had grown up in Russia. His dad had spent time in prison camp for his faith. And um, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I was going to go to a college and and get a degree in missions, but um, that college offers scholarships only if you're going back to your home country. And he said, I don't know that I'm going back to my home country. So I said, I got a school you ought to think about. And I told him about it. And short story, I got permission for him to ride back with me from California to Pensacola in the van. He just paid the extra person fee per night in the hotel, and I paid his plane ticket back. I wanted him to see it. And we had a lot of hours to talk. And his English was not real great at the time. But I remember talking to him about uh, his life experience. I said, what was it like growing up in the Soviet Union? He said, well, lots of persecution. Uh, we were not a registered church. If you were not registered with government, you, you had no place to meet. So where would you have church? Oh, we met in woods. Like, what about snow or rain that we met in the woods? How many people? He said, oh, several hundred, 250, 300. And I said, um, would the KGB come and break up the meeting sometimes? He said, oh, constantly concerned about where we meet next so KGB does not find us. And I said, um, so if they found you, would they arrest everybody? He said, no, no, they couldn't arrest everyone. Only, only one who was preaching would be arrested. And I said, how long do these services last? He said, oh, two, three hours. I said, did your pastor preach two or three hours? He said, well, no, we had several men. See, they didn't have Sunday school and Wednesday night. Oh, they packed it all into one service. And they had different ones teaching and preaching. And I said, how did you ever keep a pastor if the KGB came? He said, we had understanding among men that whoever was closest to pastor, if pastor was preaching, he takes pastor's Bible, pushes pastor aside, and man with Bible goes to prison. He said, my own father, three years in work camp, taking pastor's place. But pastor, we feel like we're grateful that people show up Wednesday night for prayer meeting. How about that kind of dedication? The church was persecuted at this time, and it's gotten bad. In fact, look at verse 2. We're told there, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Wait a minute, James... You remember the Lord had 12 apostles, but three of them were in that inner circle, and those were Peter and James and John. This is one of his three most intimate associates, and he's killed with a sword. So we see the church persecuted, then we see James executed. James executed. But then you see this, Peter incarcerated. Look at verse 3. Because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. So this is the time of the Passover. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers, four companies of four or four groups of four, to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. And, and bring him forth there is to put him on trial, and he, he's going to execute him too if he has his way. So we see the church persecuted. I wrote down our biggest problems are God's greatest opportunity. Our biggest problems are God's greatest opportunity. You know, God is attracted to weakness because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So there you have problematic situations. But number two I want you to see is persistent supplication. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but, but, you ever notice but changes everything? But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Persistent supplication. It's interesting, you know, I've, I've wondered what Peter's wife must have felt like. He had a wife, you know that, right? Um, well, we know that because he had a mother-in-law. Do you know any man has a mother-in-law without having a wife? Um, now, I love my mother-in-law. I, I am not one to engage in mother-in-law jokes. My mother, I take my mother-in-law out on coffee dates. She loves it. They're members at Tabernacle Baptist over in uh, Orlando. 
and they live in Longwood. So I'll see her actually tomorrow. We're going up to their house. And my mother-in-law have a good relationship, but I guarantee you Phyllis Westberg would not be my mother-in-law if Angela were not my wife. So Peter had a mother-in-law. He had a wife. Uh, we don't know if any of the other apostles were married. We know he was. But can you imagine what his wife is thinking? James was just killed with a sword, and now they've arrested Peter. What's going to happen? These are real people with real emotions, real problems, just like you and me. So what do they do? They start the prayer chain. In fact, they don't just have a prayer chain. Everybody gets together. So notice, Peter's kept in prison. So it's not like, hey, good news, he might get paroled. No, nothing good's happening, but prayer was made. That's interesting. The word prayer is a address to God, address made to God. I remember after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, all of a sudden TV broadcasts had these little spots. Our thoughts and prayers are with our viewers. That's where the whole thoughts and prayers thing started. And I thought it was ironic back then, 22 years ago. You know, our thoughts and prayers. These are the same stations that week in and week out blaspheme God, use his name in vain. But all of a sudden it's vogue to say our thoughts and prayers are with our viewers. Well, you know, prayer presupposes God. I mean, who are you talking to when you pray? Well, it is interesting. It says here, prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Isn't all prayer to God? Well, you remember Jesus talked about the man who prayed thus with himself, the Pharisee. Sometimes we're just praying to impress people. We're not really praying to God. Be sure when you pray, your prayer is really addressed to God. So prayer was made, but then notice this, without ceasing. That's an interesting uh, verb. The idea without ceasing is... Um, Prayer was made without ceasing. Sorry, it's an adverb to modify. The idea is um, literally stretched outedly. Now, here's the picture I always think of. Baseball. Okay, center fielder. Ball is smacked heading over the outfield. Center fielder takes off and runs and dives. He stretches out and snow cones the ball before it goes over the outfield fence. That's the literal picture here, stretched outedly, is I'm not giving up. I'm not quitting. I, I will not stop trying to grab this thing. Listen, too often you and I take no for an answer when no is not the answer. We say, well, God said no. Well, no, the really, truth is we just gave up praying. The, the other message I wanted to preach tonight, I'll do it next time, Lord willing, I call pesky persist, persistent praying. And I, I, it's a message that I love preaching. Um, God says, ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and seek and seek and seek and seek and knock and knock and knock and knock and knock. And knock and knock. I get it. The idea is persistence to the point of being a pest. And so he says, prayer was made without ceasing. There's persistent supplication. When the scripture says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, fervent is just keep at it, incessant, and with passion in it. All right, number three, I want you to see this. We not only have persistent supplication, but then providential salvation, verses 6 to 10. Providential salvation, when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. The keepers before the door did keep the prison, or kept the prison. Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. He smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Rise up quickly. His chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. So he did. He said to him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not. And the word wist, by the way, comes from our word wisdom. Didn't have the wisdom to recognize. He didn't know. He wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. And then when they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leadeth to the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed through one street. And forthwith, right away, the angel departed from him. Okay, so let's paint the scene. Peter's locked up there. Four quaternions of soldiers, so there are four different groups of men at any time. He's apparently chained between two of them. So you can picture the scene now. Now, I know you might be saying, now it doesn't say Peter snored. I, I know it doesn't say that. But he was a Galilean fisherman. I think he snored. Okay, so he's there. And what we do know from the text is Peter's dead asleep. I'm wondering what the guards are thinking. You know, who's, who's the one in prison here? You know, they got to listen to this. So he's, he's knocked out. He's dead asleep. The angel has to smite him on the side, literally exert physical force. And Peter wakes up. He says, put your coat on, put your sandals on, follow me. And as all this is happening, Peter's still like a kid trying to put on their socks and shoes, you know, when they're in a dead sleep. And, and the chains fall off his hand. And then the first gate of the prison opens up. And then the next gate of the prison opens up. And, and just Peter goes out. 
I call this providential salvation. The word salvation means deliverance, okay? So this is not his deliverance from sin, but it's deliverance from prison. And I will tell you, in, in John West, I'm sorry, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, he makes reference to this event. Uh, there's a verse that says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. All right, that's the picture from this. I don't know if you know the story. John and Charles Wesley grew up in a preacher's home. Their mother, Susanna Wesley, was a devout Christian, strong Christian. Their father was a member of the Church of England. Um, he was not the same disciplinarian that the mother was. She, that woman walked with God. She'd pray for her kids. She, she gave birth to 19 kids. Twelve of them survived beyond um, infancy or toddlerhood, I forget. She had a dozen of them that survived, and she'd spend, uh, was it an hour a week with each of them, one of them individually? She'd pray for those kids. So John and Charles were, they were raised in church, but they were not saved till they were adults. Interesting. They both went to um, Oxford University, and when they were in Oxford, they started a club called the Holy Club. They wanted to be strict adherence of what the Bible said. In fact, they became known as Methodist because they did things so methodically. That was kind of a pejorative term like Christian was originally thrown out. So Methodists, interesting, John and Charles were Methodists before they were even saved. <laughs> it's like me, I was a Methodist before I was even saved. And so here they are, they, uh, they're in church, but they're not saved. They came to the colonies, Georgia, the colony of Georgia, uh, when they were young men and they came on a mission. They were working with some orphans here. And they met, met a group of Moravian believers. And on their way back to England, they were traveling with the Moravians, and their ship got caught in a storm. And by the way, John and Charles felt like their mission here had been a total failure. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any influence. Well, they weren't saved. They didn't know it yet. So in this storm, they are fearing for their lives. They think they are going to be destroyed, and they're going to die and go to hell. The Moravians, well, they don't know. They don't know if they're going to hell or heaven. They're not sure. The Moravians are singing hymns to God, like, this is it. We're going to be ushered into heaven. And they think, what is up with these people? How do they have this assurance? They survive the storm. They get back to England. It's days, I forget, days or weeks later. John Wesley, his brother, is in London. He's on a street called Aldersgate Street. And he's hearing a public reading of the uh, preface to the book of Romans written by Martin Luther. And Luther is commenting on the just shall live by faith. And John Wesley realizes, I've been trusting my works to get me to heaven one can only get to heaven through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And he believes in the Lord as his Savior. About the same time, it was within a week of each other, Charles Wesley trusts Jesus Christ as Savior. And now maybe it makes sense when you think of those words, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Maybe you're the kind of person who's grown up in church and you've tried and tried and tried to be good, tried and tried to try to love God, but I want to tell you something, if you're, if, you're, if you're not born again, you can't love God. If you're not born again, you can't serve God. You must be born again. So what a picture this, this uh, freeing from prison is. Peter, providential salvation. But I want you to see this. Number four, I call it persuaded serenity. Serene means calm, like Pacific. Persuaded serenity. Look at verse 11 with me. This is after he comes out. When Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel, hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. What caught my attention there was the expression, come to himself. You know what that means? Any of you um, slow risers, it takes you a while to wake up? Yeah, I'll, I'll attest to that, you know. Do not have a meaningful conversation with me when I first get up. Um, sometimes I'll get up after Angela, and she will start peppering me with questions for the day. I'm like, huh, no, I haven't had a chance to wake up, you know. And, uh, man, it takes me a little bit. I've got to get my, my brain unfogged, un get cobwebs out of the brain. Here's the amazing thing. That's the idea of when Peter was come to himself. But think about this. The man is on death row. And he's been so at peace about this whole thing that he's actually been in a dead sleep the night before he might have been executed. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. That's Isaiah 26.3. 
Many of you know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep, that's like a jailkeeper, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God says, don't be stressed out. Don't be careful. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be troubled. No. Instead, actively make your request known to me. How many of us actively pray instead of allowing ourselves to worry? I have had family members that they actually think they're helping God out by worrying. You are, not, you are sinning against God. You are not helping God out by worrying. It's not my opinion. God said it. Persuaded serenity. But then I want you to see this. Number five, and this is the end of it. Profound surprise. Verses 12 to 19. Profound surprise. Pick up in verse um, 12. When he considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Oh, John Mark. I was reading his book today in my personal quiet time. What book did he write? Gospel of Mark, yeah. John Mark was a uh, son of a woman named Mary, um, nephew of one named Barnabas. Okay, so notice they're at John Mark's mom's house. Notice these words, where many were gathered together praying. Now, this week we had a few people gathered together praying. I Again, I don't, um, I, I don't belittle that. I know that schedules are crazy. But I will tell you this. It is categorically true that the least attended meetings of a church are always the prayer meetings. And the Lord Jesus said, my house should be called a house of what? Prayer. You know, we think of it as a house of preaching, a house of worship, a house of evangelism. But he said it would be a house of prayer. I remember I traveled with Dr. Ron Comfort and for an internship, and he said, listen, no prayer, no power. Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. Boy, many were gathered together praying. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. When she knew Peter's voice, she opened out the gate for gladness, but ran and told how Peter stood before the gate. They said to her, thou art mad. She constantly affirmed it was even so, but they said, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they'd opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Let me just pause here for a minute. There's a lot going on. So Peter's now a refugee, okay? He's um, a fugitive, okay? So he's out, and he goes to where the, he knows everybody will be praying for him. And remember, it's a time of persecution. They've got the door knocked, and, or locked rather, and he's knocking, and nobody comes. So he keeps knocking, and finally Rhoda comes to the door. Now, my wife tells me my theology must be off in this, but I am, I'm pretty sure Rhoda was a blonde. Now, there weren't too many blonde Jews. I don't know if there were any blonde Jews, but I think Rhoda must have been blonde. She said, who is it? And he said, it's Peter. She said, oh, it's Peter. And she leaves him standing there. Now, blondes are notorious for this. I have a family full of them. Okay, so he goes in, or she goes in, rather, said, he's here. And they think, who is it? Is it, you know, the official's going to come bust us? And she said, Peter's here. And what do they say? You're mad. In fact, that expression, thou art mad, is the, is, is the Greek term minomai. We get our word maniac from that. What's a maniac? A mentally disturbed person. You're nuts, Rhoda. And then she constantly affirms, and then they say, oh, it is his angel. I mean, Thomas must have been leading the prayer meeting, right? Doubting Thomas. Now, I say these things tongue-in-cheek. You know, I'm kidding, but, but isn't it amazing? These are the apostles of the Lord. And they say, you're crazy. What have they been asking God to do? Release Peter. Guess what? He's free. You're nuts. That didn't happen. These are the ones who had seen him feed 5,000 and 4,000 and seen people raised from the dead and were there when Lazarus got called back from the grave. And, and they say, hey, Peter's at the door. No, it didn't happen. That's crazy. And then when she's insistent, they said, well, it's his angel. And then they still hear out there. And they realize, oh, yeah, we got to go get him in. And so they, they bring him in. And then it says this, they were astonished. I double underlined in that section of scripture, thou art mad, it is his angel, they were astonished. You know why? Evidently, God did not answer this prayer because anybody had real great faith. He answered because they asked. You ever feel like, well, I don't have apostolic kind of faith. You know, I'm not like George Mueller type of person. Uh, hey, listen, George Mueller didn't get prayers answered because of who he was. Peter's wife didn't get prayer answered because I'm Peter's spouse. They, they got prayers answered because who God is. Same way you can get prayers answered. So you read on, and Peter's standing there before. But what do they mean when they say it's his angel? One of two things. Either, oh man, 
The guardian angel has dispatched Peter to heaven, has come to tell us, save your breath, it's okay, he's safe now, he's with the Father. Or Peter's spirit, Peter's been killed, but now in spirit he's come to say, listen, I'm on my way to the eternal home, don't worry about me, love you all, goodbye. Either way, they're not expecting Peter in person, and yet here he stands before them. So notice going on in uh, verse 17, but he, Peter, beckoning to them with the hand, hold their peace, declared to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. Said, go show these things to James, to the brethren. He departed, went to another place. As soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. Yeah, I'll bet. And Herod, when Herod had sought him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded they should be put to death. Now, why? Well, because their story couldn't be true. But it was. He said, what happened? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Had to be an inside job. Oh, it wasn't an inside job. It was the angel. But they didn't know that. They, they were kept from understanding all that, kept from seeing it. They couldn't explain how the doors had opened up. And then it says, he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Okay, so, profound surprise. God answered prayer even though, even though no one praying believed that he would. Isn't God gracious? I'll finish with this. One of the most incredible recent stories I've heard about answered prayer in a in a um, national context, goes back to 2002. It's about 20 years ago, this one. And how many of you remember when the D.C. sniper was killing people randomly in Washington, D.C.? Were you guys living there back then? No? Okay. 2002, this is a, an article entitled Prayer Convoy on Interstate 70. I want you to listen to this. Traffic on I-70 wasn't too bad. I should have been enjoying my day that... Uh, sh- enjoying myself that day last October, that'd be October 2002, sitting up in the cab of my 18-wheeler, cruising through the Pennsylvania hills, 36 years as a trucker, and I still got a kick out of my rig. Bass Transportation had bought this 600-horsepower tractor in 2000, it's two years old. I was the only one who drove it, and although I'd already logged almost 400,000 miles, the cab was still so clean you could eat off the floor. If traffic held steady, I would make my usual run right on schedule, hauling a tanker of building compound from Ohio to Delaware and then deadheading back to my home in Ludlow, Kentucky. But I didn't make the trip that uh, the run on time that day for the same reason I wasn't enjoying the trip, the Beltway Sniper. The words hammered in my head, eight people dead already, two wounded, and it didn't look like there'd be an end to it. At any truck stop in the D.C. area, all we talked about was the white van police were looking for. Schools were closed, people too scared to leave their homes. It weighed on me this guy was out there getting ready to kill again. I knew what it was like to lose someone you love. Five years earlier, my wife Ruth and I had lost our only son, Ron, to multiple sclerosis. It had been a pretty October day, just like this one, when he died. I knew something was up when I got to the nursing home where he was that because there was a lot of hollering going on down the hall. I I said, what's going on? It's your son, Mr. Lance, one nurse said. I hurried to Ron's room. There was our boy, sitting on the edge of his bed, hands raised over his head, praising the Lord. For more than a year, he had not been able to sit up on his own. I'm leaving here, Ron said. Somebody's coming through that door tonight to take me home. Then he looked at me real hard. He said, Dad, I don't want to be up in heaven waiting for you and you don't make it. Wasn't the first time he'd brought up the subject. Ron was a real committed Christian. My parents had raised me in the faith, but somehow I drifted away. I want you to go over to my church right now, Ron said. Find my pastor. Give your life to the Lord. Well, that's exactly what I did. Afterward, I went back to the nursing home and told Ron, I'm glad I had the chance, because somebody did come that night to take my boy home. My life turned around. I got active in church, I headed the men's fellowship, led retreats, was on the Sunday school board. I'd never make a run in my truck without kneeling at the bed, uh, by the bed at the rear of the cab and asking God to watch over Ruth. After the sniper shot his first victim, I'd been praying about that too, that someone would stop this killing spree. It had gone on now for 12 days already. Around 7 p.m., when I was about an hour and a half out of Wilmington, Delaware, the usual report came on the radio. Nothing new on the sniper. All they knew was that a white van might be involved. I got thinking about what I'd heard at church, how a bunch of people praying together can be more powerful than a single person praying alone. 
what if I get on my CB and ask some of their drivers if they want to pull off the road and pray with me about this? I pressed the button on my microphone and said, if anyone wanted to pray about the sniper, he could meet me in a half hour at the eastbound 66-mile marker rest area. A trucker answered right away, then another, and another. They'd be there. I hadn't gone five miles before a line of trucks, some coming up from behind, others ahead, slowing down, uh, formed, and we pulled into that rest area. Uh, the line had stretched for miles. It was getting dark when we pulled in. There must have been 50 rigs there. We got out of our cabs and stood in a circle, holding hands, 60, maybe 70 of us, including some wives and children. Well, let's pray. I said, anybody who feels like it can start. The first one to speak up was a kid next to me, about 10 years old. The boy bowed his head and let off, Our Father, who art in heaven. We went around the circle, some folks using their own words, others borrowing praises from the Lord's Prayer. Seemed to me like there was a special meaning where that prayer says, lead us, I'm sorry, deliver us from evil. The last person finished. We had just prayed 59 minutes. All those truckers adding an hour to their busy schedules. Ten days later, October 23rd, I was making my usual Ohio to Delaware run again. There'd been another killing. Sniper was no nearer to being caught. Right from the start, there was something different about my trip. In the first place, it was a Wednesday. I normally made my runs Tuesdays and Thursdays, but there'd been a delay at the loading dock, and so I told my pastor I'd have to miss our Wednesday night prayer meeting. We'll be praying for you, he said. The second thing that happened, I was stopped by the cops. Once was rare for me. This trip, I got pulled over three times. Not very long. They were just checking papers, but it made me late getting to Wilmington. The next strange thing, instead of catching a few hours sleep, I headed back uh, west as soon as my cargo was offloaded at around 11 p.m., that wasn't like me at all. I knew too many drivers that uh, when they didn't get enough sleep, something terrible happened. It's just like I had an appointment. Like I, I couldn't sleep if I tried. Around midnight, a show came on, a music and call-in program a lot of truckers listened to. There was news in the sniper case. There were two snipers, not one. Police now believe the guys were driving a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice with New Jersey license plate number NDA21Z, not the white van we'd all been looking for. I wrote down that tag number. Just before 1 a.m., I reached a rest area uh, near Myersville, Maryland, just a few miles from where so many of us had stood in a circle and prayed. Westbound on I-70, it was the only one that had a, uh, a men's room. I wasn't going to be long, but I wouldn't pass that by. I pulled off. The last weird thing, though, about that trip, the truck aisles were so full, I, I had nowhere to park. I'd never seen so many rigs at that stop. Well, the only thing I could do was pull around the car section, I wouldn't be long. Climbing out of my cab, I noticed a car parked in the no parking zone. The light over the men's room was shining right on it. It was a blue Chevy Caprice. Ah, must have been hundreds of Caprices out there, I, I said. I looked closer. Two men, one slumped over the steering wheel, asleep. Beyond the men's room was a row of bushes. I crept behind them, squinted to make out the license plate number. Sure enough, Jersey tag. N. DA21Z. Quietly as I could, I slipped back in my cab. Better not use my CB in case those guys have one, I said. I punched 911 on my cell phone. Hey, I'm at the Myersville rest stop. There's a blue Chevrolet Caprice here. New Jersey license NDA21Z. The operator asked me to hold on a minute. She came back with instructions wait there, don't let them see you, block the exit with your truck if you can. If an 18-wheeler can tiptoe, that's what mine did. <laughs> I blocked as much of the exit ramp as I could, but there was still room for a car to go by. Five minutes passed. Only one other driver was ready to roll. As Soon as I told him what was happening, he pulled his rig alongside mine, sealing off the exit. I sat in my cab, looking out the rear, uh, the side mirrors at the blue Chevy Caprice, expecting a shootout, thinking I ought to be scared, wondering why I wasn't. Five more minutes passed. I was afraid another truck or car would drive up and honk for us to move it, waking the suspects. But nobody stirred. The cops slid up so quietly, I didn't know they were there. Until suddenly, it was like 4th of July, with flash grenades lighting up the night sky to stun the two men. FBI agents, state troopers, officers from the sheriff's department swarmed that rest stop. Searchlights, breaking glass, shouts, the thump of helicopters, SWAT teams in night vision goggles, running low, Crouching, guns drawn. Next thing I know, the two men were being led away. 
The police took down the names and addresses of everyone who'd been at the rest area. It was two and a half hours before we were free to go. Since I'd been blocking the exit, I was the first one out. Five miles down the road, I started shaking so badly I could hardly hold the steering wheel. Then I got thinking about all the unusual things that happened for me to be at that place at that time and about my friends at church praying for me that same evening and I couldn't help think about my son Ron who led me to that church. I looked in my rearview mirror at a line of trucks behind me and I remembered leading another line of semis. Ten days earlier, I remembered a circle of truckers and their families holding hands, voices joined together to pray, deliver us from evil. The man's name is Ron Lance. You can Google it, you'll find it. It's called Prayer Convoy and I-70. Fascinating story. Bet you didn't hear that name in the evening news. But you know, there's a guy who said, people should get away with this stuff. That's one of the reasons I pray like I do about government all the time. Lord, stop them. Does prayer make a difference? Prayer changes things. Yeah. You got unsaved relatives and they don't seem to be listening. You're like, I, I want to tell them, but I can't. Listen. When you can't talk to men about God, you can always talk to God about men. So the question is, will you? Will you pray? The power of prayer. We need to pray big prayers to a big God looking for big answers. Would you bow with me and thank you for listening so well tonight? Lord, I pray that you would meet with us on this matter of prayer. I have to think sometimes we don't pray because it feels tedious. It just seems like it, it doesn't do much. Other times, prayer just seems like such hard work. Well, no wonder we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And you said very clearly, you look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All those things are true. But you also said, it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I know it would be your good pleasure that we be a praying people. So I pray you'd make us a praying people. I pray you'd make us praying individuals. Not just collectively that First Baptist would be known as a praying church, but that we, each one, as an individual, would be known as a praying person. Heads are bowed. Let me ask this question tonight. How many of you would say, yeah, you know, I, I, I know I should pray, and I know every time I hear a message on prayer, you, you never feel like you're completely adequate on prayer and such, but i got to admit, tonight the Lord specifically rung my doorbell on this. He, he specifically delivered the mail to me. I am definitely hearing the prompting of God on the matter of my own prayer life. Would you lift your hand? You said, I needed this tonight. I'm hearing. Okay, a lot of hands. How many of you needed a a heavenly swat, as it were, a, a nudge from heaven, I, I've got to get active in praying. I, don't, I can't just be, you know, hit and miss about it. I really need to get into a consistent time, consistent habit of prayer. Who needed that tonight? You said, that's what I needed, okay? How many of you would say, I need an encouragement tonight. Sometimes I feel like I pray and pray, and I don't know if it's going anywhere. And, you know, hearing the story of Peter and then hearing the story of this man, the trucker, and realizing sometimes you pray and pray, and you're not really seeing anything happen, but all of a sudden the change comes, the breakthrough occurs. I needed that tonight. Anybody need that encouragement? You say, I needed that. Yeah, amen. How many of you needed the, the observation that when you can't talk to men about God, you can always talk to God about men? Anybody need that one? And I, I've tried to witness to him. I've tried to win him. I can't. No. When your hands are tied, God's are not. You know, when, when he's omnipotent, how can anything be too hard for him? How can anything be hard for him? He's all powerful. I'd like to ask you to stand with me tonight, and we'll finish out with an invitation. I want to give an invitation on salvation, but I will. But I want to start with God's people. Maybe you haven't moved all week, but this would be a good time to bow the knee before God. She's going to play, and I'm going to ask you to come and find a spot. The, the front section's wide open. Every seat had been open for you here and the platform. Would you leave your place with a head bowed and say, Lord, here, here's where you spoke to me tonight. How about you come now, and then I'll give the uh, gospel appeal. You need to be saved. I'm going to tell you how, but first of all, God's people. You said, man, I needed that tonight. Maybe you say, Lord, I don't, I have to admit, I don't even want to pray. 
he anticipates that. That's why he says it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Not only to do, not only to enable you, but to make you willing. How about you tell him that? Lord, you know, I don't feel like praying. Sure you don't. The, the spirit's willing. The flesh is weak. But I'll tell you this. You begin to engage in prayer, you'll find yourself drawn more and more to it because prayer changes things. We often say prayer changes things. Why is that? Prayer changes things because on the receiving end of prayer is God. It's God who changes things. Others need to come? I'll wrap it up with this question tonight. Have you ever prayed the most important prayer a person can pray? You might say, well now, boy, that could be, that could be debated. Like, what is the most important prayer a person can pray? Well, Jesus said there was one guy worded it this way, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Another, one of the two thieves that were dying with Jesus on the cross, at first was antagonistic to the Lord, but then he was repentant. And he turned and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The Lord said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The greatest prayer you'll ever pray is this, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word call is a cry of desperate dependence. It's not going through official confirmation to join a church. It's not being baptized. It is a cry of total dependence upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. How many here can testify, God answered that prayer for me? Would you hold up your hand? Thank God he answered that one. Amen. So here, who tonight would say, I've never asked the Lord to be my Savior. I've never put my trust in him to save me from my sin, from hell. But I see now that I need to. Would you hold up your hand? I wouldn't embarrass you for the world, but you'd say, pray for me. Pray with me. I want to be saved. I want the Lord as my Savior. Anybody like that? You say, that is my need tonight. Look unto me and be saved. I'm not seeing a hand, but I surely, I'll go out there and be in the lobby, and I'd be glad to talk to you about the Lord. If you haven't acknowledged your need, but you know you have a need, talk to me. Talk to Pastor. Any of us here that know the Lord, any of these church people, we'd love to show you not, not how to become a Baptist. That would be great, but First things first, you've got to be born again. That's what you need. Oh, Father, please don't let the word be snatched out of our heart. I pray you'll seal it and bring forth fruit from it. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Pastor, I'll turn it back to you, brother. Thank you.